Welcome to the Night Parlor. everyone. Welcome back to The Night Parlor. I'm your host, Joshua Rex. Today I'll be speaking with historian Dustin McLaughlin. Dustin's work focuses on the 19th uh, U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes' political career and Hayes' relationship to slavery and civil rights. Dustin earned a B.A. in History and Political Science from Indiana University Kokomo in 2005, an M.A. in History from Bowling Green State University in, 20, in uh, 2008, and a PhD in policy history, also from Bowling Green State in 2014. He has taught at Lourdes University and BGSU and chairs the curatorial and education department at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museums. Dustin, thanks for joining me in the night parlor. Yeah, thanks for having me, it's an honor. Would you tell me about your path to becoming an historian? Uh, when you entered university, were you focused on the subject from the outset? Uh, no, you know, when I started um, as a young undergraduate student, I guess it, it was I was focusing on becoming a teacher. Uh, that's what I was wanting to do. Uh, I settled on English, actually, as my subject um, for teaching. And I really felt overwhelmed, I think, in trying to navigate those waters. Whereas um, I started to take some history courses with um, a number of professors and it seemed to click a lot more. It was one of those, it was a thing where the more I did it, the more I was thinking, this is what I feel comfortable with. Um, so I switched to uh, become a social studies teacher um, and was going through the process of that. Uh, started to take some teaching classes to go along with my content classes and found out very quickly that the, um, let's say the, the job requirements for being a teacher, especially for middle school students, because in Indiana, um, you had to get certification from fifth grade all the way to 12th grade. So we had to do observations for high school students in, in the actual schools and observations for middle school, middle school students. I just found that I wasn't going to find that particularly rewarding. Um, and, and I give a lot of credit to people who stick it out and become teachers because it requires so much of them. Um, but I think for me, it wasn't quite what I was expecting or hoping for. So going through and discovering that in my teaching classes, uh, I decided to give it a shot, you know, to go apply to some master's programs and see how things would work out in history. Um, this was before 2008. I don't know, I'm sure your, your listeners know, and as you know, 2008 was a pretty rough economic year. Um, and so I went into um, my master's program uh, hoping, believing that the job market was decent enough, you know, to get a job in history teaching at the college level of some sort. 2008, after finishing my master's, I went on to the PhD program uh, because I enjoyed uh, the content so much that I was learning. 
again and, and, and thinking there would be some job opportunities. And in 2008, of course, the, the bottom fell out for a lot of the economic situation here in the U.S. And, and um, uh, believing actually at the time when all that was happening, I was like, well, this is actually pretty good for me. You know, uh, I'm going to spend four years, four plus years here in, in school and not have to deal with the economy directly, you know, job market. Um, uh, but as you probably know, uh, the, uh, there were a lot of layoffs at the academic level that simply just were not refilled. Uh, instead of filling them again with, with new uh, uh, employees or professors, they simply decided to um, cut classes and find different ways to deal with, uh, with the demand from the student side. Um, so, uh, basically, <laughs> the long story short, yeah, I got into history because of a simple love for it in hopes that the job market would work out. You know, I landed on my feet, but it was a simple, uh, it was a, it was a, um, a dicey thing, really, to get into history um, and to stick it out, especially in those years. But, um, yeah, that's basically the, the short, quick evolution of my thinking as I was going through this history uh, journey. No, and as you were mentioning, there aren't always a lot of history jobs out there available. Sometimes you have to sort of go where the job is. Am I right in that? Yeah, that's true. And, and I, um, you know, maybe I'll save this for a question down the road. But um, yeah, there, I did land on my feet, as, as, I, as I mentioned in my reply. But it, it took a little bit of a change of subject and a change of what I was doing to, to land on my feet. I think a lot of people have to be nimble in that way. Oh, speaking of which, how did you come to focus on 19th century America in your studies? Yeah, exactly what, what, what I was thinking and where I had to be nimble. I actually, when I was um, in under, or sorry, when I was at the uh, graduate level, um, I worked with um, American historian, of course, you know, American history, but I was focused on uh, U.S. Latin American relations, actually, in the 20th century. And I worked with a Latin American historian as well. And it started. It sort of developed uh, again, as I said, you know, going from from Kokomo, Indiana. I actually went back to my hometown while I was working on my master's research, and found an archive there in my university uh, that focused on this migrant uh, migrant uh, farm working uh, community here in Indiana and a group of uh, supporters of theirs during the you know the famous Cesar Chavez era of the grape and the lettuce boycotts. Um, and I started to write about this migrant worker movement and its connection to the American Catholic, to American Catholicism. Um, and when I got to my PhD level, I sort of expanded on that, uh, but I took it in a much more, a much broader look at 1960s labor and immigration policy. Um, and culminating, of course, in that 65 um, act uh, from, from Lyndon Johnson. Hold on. And uh, from Lyndon Johnson. And I basically wrote about that as for my dissertation topic. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I was a 20th century labor and immigration historian, US, US labor and US immigration historian. Uh, but when I was working on my dissertation, uh, I started to look for things to do, you know, on the side as well as sort of get my feet wet into some other areas. And I actually 
funny enough, just decided to volunteer here at the Hayes, giving tours to fourth grade students. <laughs> so they were, there'd be, you know, you know, fourth grade school tours who would come through um, in May towards the end of the year when students are, are done with their testing and they can do a little more fun things. And they would come here to the, to the, to Spiegel Grove. And I was giving tours to fourth graders um, and while writing my dissertation. Um, and so uh, when an education coordinator position showed up, started here, I applied and, uh, you know, I got this job as the education coordinator. So, you know, funny enough, it, it, I will admit it was a, it's a bit of a, um, you know, shot to the ego to some extent that you're, that you uh, have a PhD, working on your PhD. And your primary job responsibility is to come up with education activities and fun things for fourth graders and in schools, you know, you know, that, that age group. Uh, but I found that my background, you know, working as a towards becoming a teacher in my undergrad years, um, it was sort of a, it was a good first job for me. Um, and I did that for a number of years. And of course, I had this thought in my head, I would do this for three or four years was what was going through my head. Uh, but I really would like to have moved on from it before before those three or four years were up. And I kind of had that time, uh, that, that clock in my head of, of when I would move on. Well, you know, about two years into it, the director here at the Hayes had this um, desire to, to restructure the staff how we are here. And um, she, uh, uh, basically created this historian position uh, for me, um, moved me out of the education coordinator position, created this research focused position, uh, research and writing focused position. Um, and I've been in it now for a little over four years. I would definitely say the first two years of it was me getting my feet wet uh, on this subject. If anyone who's gone through history knows, you know, of course, getting a PhD in history, it, it provides a lot of critical thinking skills and a lot of uh, creativity skills and what you're writing about and how you're, how you're focusing on what you're, what you're learning. But the content was not quite there. You know, it was, just wasn't there. Uh, of course, I knew Hayes because I've been given tours. I've been doing the education programs. I've been learning that stuff. But it probably wasn't until two or three years into my job here as the historian with that title that I felt that my emphasis has switched. You know, no longer was I a U.S. labor immigration guy in the 20th century. And now I, I feel very confident to say that I'm a um, presidential reconstruction era, uh, you know, uh, historian from the 19th century. So it took a little time, um, and I'm just now getting to the point uh, I have online a number of um, entries that I'm putting together, as you mentioned, uh, on Hayes and civil rights and, and African and slavery. Um, and then uh, I'm working on a couple of journal uh, journal articles as well, and hopefully, you know, building that up to to get a, um, you know, a book. So yeah, that's really interesting to hear how you moved from education in, into becoming an historian there. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say uh, on a side note that my, I think my passion from history and, and why I wanted to become a historian as well is based on, funny enough, 
one of those tours, those fourth grade tours, which I went on to the Hayes Center. <laughs> and I always forgot that there's something about it that stuck with me. So it's great to hear that you guys are still doing that and to let you know that obviously they're very influential. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it was it was actually a very quiet, the last two Mays have been very quiet, obviously, because of COVID. And it's been a, it's been a different world here. Uh, usually in, the May, in May, it's just full of fourth grade students. Um, it's great giving tours because they are so wide-eyed and they're excited. Of course, you get some students who are just there to make a noise and running around, right? You get, those, <laughs> you get those three or four students who are just, they're just, they are locked in on what you're talking about. And, and yeah, I've heard from, from lots of people who are, who remember that fourth grade tour very well. And I'm sure wherever they're from, they probably have that fourth grade tour. You know, I know for me in Kokomo, there's a mansion, that, mansion there uh, called the Cyberling Mansion. Um, and I remember that fourth grade tour and, and learning about the history there. So, yeah, oh, definitely. I, I was certainly one of the locked in students. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, talk to me a little bit about your day to day at the Hayes Museum at uh, Spiegel Grove. How does your role as historian docent there compare to teaching at universities? Yeah, I, you know, my one year is teaching at, at, at Bowling Green um, was full-time that is, was um, really uh, teaching heavy. It was an instructor position. It wasn't, it was teaching first. There wasn't really, you know, anything in the contract about research. Uh, so it was just, it was teaching classes, pre prepping for classes and, and teaching. Uh, I had it while I was working on the dissertation. So there was that research side to it that I was doing on my own. Um, I would say here, um, and then what I envision, maybe what a, a professor job is like, is that there is like this job is um, primary job function is to do research and try to publish about Hayes. So I'm happy about that. And I think the professor, uh, it's a very similar situation for them on their particular subject. Um, but instead of teaching as the means of sort of showing your worth at the university, I guess, as a professor might be, might do. Here it's doing a lot, like you mentioned, being a docent, we were going through a COVID, um, you know, time, we were going, during COVID, we were going through a time where we had to furlough uh, a lot of our house guides or docents who were um, part-time workers, usually retirees that are looking for that fun job later in life. Um, and we had to uh, basically furlough them because we wanted to stay afloat. And so the full-time staff and Joshua, this is when you came through and took a tour here. We had um, a number of full-time people who were given the tours and I ended up giving your tour. Um, and so I, I'm happy to say, not that I don't like giving tours, but it, it you know, it was um, time to kind of get back to the other parts of the job that I like to do, but I'm happy to say just starting here in June. So two days ago as of this recording, we finally have our house guides back and our volunteers back. And, and so my, my job as far as giving tours isn't quite as heavy. Now, so research is the main part of the job, but there are, there are a number of other things that I, would, that I do here to, um, again, contribute to how this, this institution um, works um, in addition to the research. And, and my primary duty beyond that is I am the supervisor of the house guides in the home. So I provide their schedule. I try to keep them up to date on the research and the information that they're sharing with the visitor who comes through. Um, and I head up a number of events. Uh, 
one, the, the two that I'm the, that I head are uh, the Civil War winter camp. We have a winter encampment here in October and I, and I had that up and uh, we have a beer and cra cocktail festival, <laughs> craft beers and cocktails. Uh, we have that in August and I had that, that program up too, which is super fun. Um, I also uh, head up the film festival. Um, we have a film festival here. I don't head up the film festival, but we have a committee that's focused on uh, acquiring films and getting films and then putting the films, you know, scheduling the films for the festival. And I head that committee, which is, which is also fun. Uh, I already mentioned my uh, bi-weekly post I put together. Um, and I, that, that kind of falls, that obviously falls under research and writing, but those are all up on, on rbhate.org as well. So that's another big part of what I do on a daily, uh, daily uh, thing. And, and, and it, while I'm trying to do all that stuff, then I'm trying to get these articles put out there and, and maybe, uh, you know, move on with my academic publishing as well. Speaking of your research, uh, there's a focus presently on making history more inclusive in general. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? And are there some areas of study at the Hayes Museum that you're reevaluating to make this so? Um, you know, we, uh, we are trying, here's the thing with Hayes is if, I don't know how much, you know, Hayes is one of those presidents who's forgotten, right? He's not well known but he does pop up. And if people do know about him, it's because of the way he was elected. Um, and so there is this direct connection or I'm sorry, better way to say that is there's, there's always going to be Hayes. Um, when Hayes comes up, he's always gonna be connected with this idea of Indian reconstruction. And sometimes um, depending on the savviness perhaps of the researcher, there's this then almost direct connection to the ending of, or the beginning of, of Jim Crow, you know, connecting Hayes to Jim Crow. Um, these things are very, this is a very difficult topic to talk about, and, and maybe we can talk about it later, but the, the important part to answer your question here is that because of all of this, uh, we do have a direct avenue to begin talking about um, important topics in, in America society today, especially with, with civil rights. Um, and we try to, uh, we, um, I'm, we have a, um, a grant that helps fund some of these things. It's called the Network to Freedom Grant, where uh, we focus on Hayes' connection to that particular topic. Um, I did, and I'm, tr I'm working on getting this published and out there, but my my, my most recent research was on his time as a lawyer during the, during, in Cincinnati where he defended uh, fugitive slaves. Um, and so there, is, there are these connections between Hayes' president, Hayes' lawyer, Hayes and his post-presidency and how he connects this, this larger trajectory of civil rights. And we, we've partnered with the NAACP here in Fremont in ways that we can sort of be inclusive, not only in what we're presenting, but be inclusive in how um, the, the process of creating programs around this and everything that goes on here in Fremont uh, has that uh, inclusion in the process as well. And it was talking about race. That's one way that we, that we try to be inclusive here. We just try to be inclusive as well with people with disabilities, you know, simply trying to create an environment where all people can enjoy. Um, we have, um, whether it's just as simple as creating a stairway with a ramp in between to provide access to to uh, those with disabilities. Um, 
where you know, whether it's on the house tours, providing access to the to the to the place through through lifts and things like that, and we also provide um, um, videos and transcriptions for those who are unable to view the whole home. But we also try to be inclusive in the way that we the way that our site is used by others, right? So it's sort of been a thing, and especially in historic home museums, of this come walk through, but don't touch, don't sit, don't do anything. Keep your hands in your pockets, right? That's sort of like, this is the house, and we need to keep it sacred, and you can look, but don't touch. Um, we really are trying to break away from that. Um, uh, we, we are, for example, I mean, for crying out loud, this feels so archaic, but we didn't even allow uh, photographs in the home, you know, as of like over a year ago. And uh, we are, of course, wanting people to be able to take pictures. We want people to be able to not be confronted with um, here's the roped area that you can stand in. Here's where you can go. Obviously, we have to protect these things. These are things that actually belong to Rutherford and Lucy Hayes. And for what that's worth, it is important to us. And I think it's important to a lot of people uh, that we keep those in nice condition. But we can do that without making it feel like you're intruding by being here. So there's a lot of ways that uh, I give a lot of credit to our current director, who's really made a lot of these changes, uh, who's trying to really open up um, who's, who's allowed here, who's invited here, right? <laughs> this is a community place. This is a place for all people to come enjoy and to experience. And we want to make sure that they feel uh, like they're part and not, you know, an interloper. <laughs> it does feel like that, I have to say, uh, on my visit. And the last tour, when when uh, when I met you, I felt I felt very welcome, and I thought I thought you did a wonderful job as a docent as communicating that feeling where it wasn't this stiff museum that you're walking into, and you know, absolutely no photographs or anything like that. Uh, it felt very comfortable. And walking the grounds, I mean, it's it's leisurely. Uh, Hayes and his wife are, are buried on the grounds, uh, so so that's an interesting component also to, to visiting uh, the to visiting Spiegel Grove. Uh, the library was the same thing, very inviting. Uh, it, it felt like you guys were sort of a family. Everyone from the gift shop. Uh, <laughs> The, the person running the gift shop to the librarian yeah. to, to yourself in the house. So uh, for my part, it definitely felt like that, that was communicated. Uh, one side note I wanted to ask you about with regard to inclusivity um, that I don't think we've talked about before. Uh, have, have there been any focuses on the uh, servants of the Hayes house during that time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, it's, we actually had a house, she just passed away actually a couple of months ago, but she did a lot of research on the servants in the home. Um, and we did, we, she created, give her the credit, uh, this great uh, experience for, for visitors that we were doing before COVID hit of taking people through the back stairs tour, right? So they go through the back stairs, going to the servants quarters, coming down to the kitchen. It was a tour specifically focused on what it would have been like to live there as a servant. Um, and of course we had a number of, uh, Hayes had a number of African-American servants. Um, and matter of fact, uh, oftentimes this isn't introduced in the tour, depending on the tour guide you get. But Rutherford's uncle, who was 
actually, you know, who was, who was, um, who operated as his father because his actual father died before he was born. His uncle who built the home and who gave the home to Rutherford actually refused to allow uh, Rutherford and Lucy's African-American servants to come live in the home. Um, and it wasn't until he passed away that Rutherford and Lucy were able to bring, uh, specifically their one, one longtime server, her name was Wendy Monroe, to allow her to come and live in the house with them. So um, there is this story here, not just of African-American servants, but uh, servants who spoke different languages. I, you know, there were Irish servants, German servants, um, servants. Um, and there is a story here about that. And we were lucky that she did all this research and she put this tour together and it was very well received. Uh, but yeah, we would love to start it up again uh, once the, um, once we feel like we're back in motion completely after this pandemic. But yeah, we have done something on that. Yeah, that sounds like a, a wonderfully enriching project and tour. Uh, I'll look forward to that in the future. Uh, as mentioned in the intro, you've written extensively on Rutherford B. Hayes, that he's your focus uh, in th that specific time period. Um, you, you focus particularly on his political career and relationship to civil rights. Uh, would you talk about Hayes' thoughts and beliefs on slavery and abolition and his specific role in Reconstruction, as you were discussing earlier? Yeah, I mean, that's the big topic uh, when it comes to Hayes. He, he's this figure that, um, I'll be honest with you, just to kind of as an intro before I get into the details, I'm, I'm sort of on this, uh, this wavy ride with Hayes as well. You know, some days I, I get this feeling of like, wow, this guy was misunderstood. And boy, or, boy has, has the historical record really uh, pushed him and pulled him through the mud. And then other days I'm, I feel like, wow, this guy was so out of touch with what was going on in America. I can't believe <laughs> he would make these decisions. I can't believe that um, he would be so, you know, blind to what was going on in the South. And um, so I guess depending on the day that you talk to me is going to be the day where I decide whether I'm, <laughs> you know, defending Hayes or, or throwing him through the mud. But, um, you know, Hayes is this interesting figure. I, I think what I sort of always um, come back to is that in a lot of ways, Hayes is a barometer. He's a real sort of, um, he's, a, he's a great way to look at how the Republican Party in general, and the Whig Party into the Republican Party, and how Northerners and how Republicans embraced and looked at this question of slavery and then into civil rights. And when he was growing up in Ohio, and I've already mentioned his uncle Sardis, who was his father figure, really taught, Sardis really taught Rutherford to be anti-abolitionist. I mean, we have all kinds of evidence from when Hayes was younger and talking about not only um, he's prideful in not being an abolitionist, but he speaks with derision towards those who are abolitionists. And of course, as we know, abolitionism meant a lot more at those times than ending slavery. It was also had this connection with, uh, you know, ending racism as well. You know, so a lot of people in the mid early 19th century simply were not, and I say by people, I mean white people, of course, in this in this context, uh, were not willing to even, you know, consider the issue of of, of ending racism, you know, even if you had 
this desire to end the process of owning people. You know, maybe the idea for a lot of people was to take uh, a, a freed slave and send them to Africa or something of that nature to where they could maybe tackle this question of slavery, but not have to tackle the other question of racism. Um, but Hayes was, was derisive towards abolitionists, of course, as his uncle was. You know, it's not until we get, not until he moves to Cincinnati, and this is in the 1850s. Um, he starts to become involved in the elite circles around there, the academic circles. He joins the Cincinnati Literary Club um, and really starts to rub shoulders with prominent abolitionists like Sam and Chase, who he called a bore, by the way. He didn't like Sam and Chase that much, but uh, Sam and Chase and Cassius Clay and James Burney and these, these famous national figures uh, of the abolitionist uh, uh, mindset. And, you know, there is some perhaps connection as well with Lucy Hayes. And as he gets to know her and Lucy was a little bit more um, progressive on this issue than Rutherford, but I am not convinced that she's the major um, driver here. I think they, they kind of go through this journey together um, and they start to see it um, a little bit more they start to basically fall in with the trend that's going on in this northern Whig switch into the Republican Party of, of viewing uh, slavery as something to end, right? And, and as not only just because of slavery and its purpose of the slavery, but because of this becoming this, the, the hot political topic and how, you know, slavery um, becomes so identified with the southern viewpoint that in the north, if you are of, of a different you know, in this Republican view, you, even if maybe you were not pre you know, predisposed to ending slavery before, you, on the political issues, you start to feel that way later. And I think Hayes really uh, typifies that. And I think as a, as a lawyer, uh, he does defend slave multiple, slaves who were escaped multiple times. Uh, one was uh, Lewis and the other was Rosetta Armstead. And on both cases, um, he he, as a lawyer, um, really typifies the, the, the trends that are going on at this time, the questions of whether or not slavery was um, the, the natural law and you had to have law to overturn it or whether slavery or freedom was the natural law and you had to have laws to overturn, overturn freedom, right? And he's really up to all of these questions. And when the Civil War breaks out, he specifically does say, um, that the war was about slavery. Um, and so he starts, even before the Emancipation Proclamation and all of these things that come out a little bit later, you know, he says that this is about slavery. And he actually writes very negatively about people who think they're fighting this war, but don't feel strongly about the, he even calls out William Tecumseh Sherman as someone you should focus on after this war, because if he becomes a leader in the army after the war, you know, what was this all about, right? So obviously William Tecumseh Sherman does become leader of the army after the war. Matter of fact, is the head when Hayes is president. But, but uh, nonetheless, um, you know, he starts to view himself in this manner. When he's in Congress, he becomes a congressman um, after the war. And he sides with the radical Republicans. He's not given speeches out there like Thaddeus Stevens and, you know, Charles Sumner and these people who, be, who make a name for it. But he's, he's, uh, he votes alongside with them. 
he actually refers to himself as that at one point as a radical Republican. When he runs for governor for the first time, his plank, his platform is basically a radical Republican platform. But as we go into the 70s, 1870s, you do start to see he um, starts again to uh, go into with the crowd and in the way the Republican Party starts starts to a step back from the issue. You know, in 1872, there's this revolt against Grant as this group of liberal Republicans begin to run um, against the regular Republicans, and they actually co-opt the Democratic Party into their their candidate. Uh, Hayes doesn't follow along with the liberal Republicans. He stays as a Grant Republican. But in 76, when he's running, um, he's communicating, he's talking with guys like Carl Schurz, who did lead the Republican liberal Republican revolt. And he's working very closely with them. And they, they have this view that Reconstruction was a failure. And the reason why it was a failure was because Republicans um, essentially found a way to put a target on black people in the South because they were so um, connected to the Republican Party. And in a weird way, Hayes and his advisors really felt that the only way to help uh, black men specifically in the South, because they're the ones who could vote, and of course the women and children as well, but we're talking about voters here, is to push them out of the Republican Party, almost like a baby like a mom bird pushes a baby bird out of the nest, right? And only by doing that could the target, you know, in their mind, black men are not being allowed to vote. They're being intimidated, all this stuff. Because white men in the South see Republican voters. They don't, and so he's, in a way, this is where my, where, you know, questioning whether Hayes is naive or what, but this idea that it's not about racism to him. It's about Republican versus Democrat. And if they don't, if they aren't for sure voting Republican, then they may not be intimidated and all this violence might go away. If we can end this color line is what he called it. Um, man, what a failure that was, right? <laughs> now, what the question it comes down to, and I think this is why it becomes such a hot topic every four years, uh, and it just was a hot topic in 2020, is that Hayes loses the popular vote, according to the final numbers, by 250,000 votes. Uh, but he wins the electoral vote by one after a very contested fight over three southern states. Um, after electoral commission decides that Hayes had won, there was a threat for a filibuster and there were dilatory actions by Democrats to stop the count. And what occurs is that a lot of Republicans are meeting with some key Democrats to fight or to prevent this filibuster from occurring. And in the mystique or the mythic uh, background of this particular election is that there was this trading away. There was this Hazel will withdraw all the troops from the South and reconstruction in exchange for the presidency. There's a lot that's wrong with that narrative. Uh, not only was Hayes already declared the winner by the electoral commission, but he had made the decision all along in his nomination letter that he was going to support um, honest local self-government in the South. 
Um, which is his way of saying, no longer am I going to prop up Republican governors down there. Um, so historians have grappled with this. You know, was there something given away? Could what, what was the reason for giving it away? Um, ever since the fifth, 1950s, um, you know, with C. Van Woodward, um, this narrative of a bargain has kind of been debunked. You know, Woodward then talked about this issue of of economic concessions to end the, the potential filibuster and things like that, that he, he leaned into. But most historians who study this particular moment um, fully agree that there wasn't really anything to trade away, <laughs> that Hayes uh, had already won the presidency, that he was already set on this motion of ending reconstruction anyway. So what could these negotiations have really have been anyway? There's a lot of speculation on that. What I like to write about, and what I, I guess what I want to make clear here, isn't to defend Hayes' decisions on Reconstruction. Now, there were only two states that he could make a decision on anyway, because the other states had been redeemed. It was only South Carolina and Louisiana that he could really make a decision on. But it's not to absolve him for those decisions. I mean, he did make a very naive decision, as I kind of already pointed out in a lot of ways. But oftentimes, Historians, some to some point, journalists really are, are, are for exceptionally fall into this trap of thinking there's a connection between with Indian Reconstruction and the election itself. They were two very controversial and difficult uh, topics that are very fun to talk about as a historian. But connecting the two is where people get into a lot of trouble, <laughs> from what I found. So, uh, yeah, and then Hayes after the after becoming president, of course. He makes those decisions, which um, he, along with a lot of other Republicans and other um, leaders at the time, deserve their fair share of, of, of ridicule for the way that they managed uh, this post-Civil War moment. Um, but after the presidency, uh, he does move into believing. And again, this is where maybe from a modern perspective, we can talk about the naivety here but believing that the answer to all of these questions was through education, uh, providing education to black men and women actually at the time, and uh, hoping, this becomes famous a little bit later with the guys like Booker T. Washington, this idea that it, through, through education and through self-improvement, whites would have nothing but to be able to accept uh, uh, the black community. Um, but he believes through education and through these, these uh, own personal thrift that the black community as a whole, and I think this is where it gets really sort of these racial undertones that we can spot very clearly today, uh, but this belief that uh, the black community as a whole could lift themselves up as if they're not individuals in and of themselves, right? They are one group, kind of the wide, wide paintbrush that we're talking about here, but he had that view. Um, of bringing that up through education. Um, noble ideas, I suppose, you know, at the time, from a modern perspective, it still feels very uh, naive and racist. Uh, but, uh, you know, in a, in a real, I don't know how quick that was, but in a nutshell, as best as I could, that's the trajectory of Hayes's life uh, in regards to civil rights and, and African-Americans. Yeah, and adding something to that, I have a question. I've read somewhere that, uh, as part of this pseudo agreement that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, that Hayes said he would only serve one term. Is there a validity to that? No, actually, the documents are pretty clear on this. Hayes, when he was nominated for the Republican Party, 
um, in his acceptance letter, he says he's going to be a one-term president. His reasons for that are actually dealing with civil. So at, if, if we wanted to get really into the weeds of this, and all I'll say is if you ever see my name out there on a journal article or something, and you're interested in this topic, this is probably what I'm writing about. But what Hayes, Hayes' real interest in all of this is a, is a thing that's going on right now. It's called civil service reform, or thing that's going on back then, civil service reform. And um, Hayes, uh, wants to put an end, once again, like a lot of Republicans at the time, it's not as if he's some trailblazer here, but he wants to put an end to this um, appointments that are being generated basically on what you've done for the party, right? Creating this party machine. And instead of dealing with that, he's looking for merit and creating these, this, uh, these, these jobs based on merit and providing the best honest government, you know, and this idea of an honest government. He does that somewhat, but the thought is, is that when he's running, when he's nominated, he, his idea is that that's all presidents are doing in their first term is they're setting their men in place and these appointments and these positions so that they can have their reelection and they can get reelected for four more years. And his argument is, well, if that first term, all it is, is creating the machine so that your second term can be productive, his argument was, I'll just go straight to my second term and I'm going to skip all of those appointment things, uh, appointment stuff. In his in his nomination, or sorry, in his inauguration, uh, he actually mentions getting rid of the second term. One term president, six years. Uh, that's that's all they would get. Um, and so his his belief was that the not the reelection was a big part that was generating the civil service question. Um, so that was a big, that was the reason for the one term pledge. And it has nothing to do with this, um, this supposed compromise. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, have you made any surprise discoveries while researching the archives at the Hayes Library or in the special collections department? You know, a lot of what I write about is more nuanced. You know, there's not a whole lot of, um, ooh, this is a brand new thing we haven't looked at yet. Not, not a lot of that pops up, but, but it's more or less how we're looking at this and how we're thinking about it. I think one of the pitfalls that often comes in public history and this isn't to put down uh, public history at all. You know, these, these, uh, these are individuals who are very interested in the topic. Um, um, but oftentimes in, 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 in public history institutions, there, it, there's, a, there's a bit of a problem studying the individual or the topic that that museum is focused on and providing the larger context of what's going on around it. So for example, with Hayes, we can look at Hayes's time as, as a um, fugitive slave lawyer and say, wow, what a trailblazer he must have been. He was out there defending slaves in Cincinnati in the 1850s. A lot of that could be true. But if you don't realize that there was this massive movement in Cincinnati in the 1850s in this direction, that there were multiple people who were involved in this process, yeah, Hayes is still right from a from a contemporary perspective looking back he's on the right side of this issue and, and we should give him credit for that but there's a lot more going on here and i think i think oftentimes when you go into public history uh like take a tour in the hayes home for example maybe you would get a guide who who really uh connects with hayes and talks you know highly of hayes and 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 that's great uh but oftentimes it may skew it a little bit because of how um it's almost like it, the kind of 
building him up a little, not that it's wrong to build him up, but not putting him in the context of the other things that are going on there and helping to understand a little bit more of a full view of what's taking place. Um, so a lot of that is me sort of trying to provide the context of what's going on um, and provide the nuance to the decisions that Hayes is making. And I'm learning those things as we go too, you know, as I get into it and find new things out. Uh, as far as like uh, surprise discoveries, it's, it's, it's uh, one thing that I think that, you know, that I found recently is that we have been referencing Spiegel Grove. That's the name of the, of the, of the property here. And for years, and maybe you remember this since you went on a fourth grade tour, for years, everyone here has said that Spiegel Grove, you know, Spiegel being the word for German, or sorry, the word for mirror in German, and it references the puddles, pools of water here, and reflections from the pools of water to create these mirrors. Um, that's incredibly not correct, and, and we still say that today. There was a, uh, one of Rutherford's cousins was writing in the 1920s, and she's the one who who started that. If you look at the, the, the correspondence between Rutherford Hayes and Sardis Burchard and Sardis Burchard's uh, um, niece, her name was Mary Burchard, Spiegel really is a reference to spirits. And you can kind of point this out. It, you can kind of either, there's two ways that they joked about. One was not the joke, but the joke was that it was the Grove of Good Spirits which is that, you know, a lot of people who had uh, died at Spiegel Grove, who were still there, sort of the, providing good, good aura to the grove. And then the other sort of jokey way of looking at it was, and this is where his niece comes in, Sardis's niece comes in, is she jokes, well, Sardis really likes to drink. So this must be about, you know, about liquor, you know, spirits and liquor, and it's, you know, you know liquor grove, basically, I guess. But, but, um, but maybe maybe the reason why they the staff here at Hayes before we were here went with the other stories is that it was easier to talk about puddles than it is to talk about liquor. And it's, you know, trying to explain the whole spirits and good spirits thing is a little convoluted. So they just went with puddles. But we, we found out pretty quick. We found out uh, within the last year or so that the puddles thing was not really that. Um, another thing that I've I've just actually just posted on one of my, um, my one of my entries on the website was there was a biographer from Rutherford of Rutherford uh, who talked about and kind of getting back to the previous question about Hayes's relationship to abolitionism and saying that when he went to Kenyon College as a undergrad that he would have been his, his anti-abolitionism would have been reinforced by Southern faculty who were determined to defend slavery at Kenyon. Well, you know, just kind of uh, doing some research here, trying to find out uh, the faculty members and their origins, and then actually contacting the archives at Kenyon College, finding out that not one faculty member when Hayes was there was actually Southern. They were actually all from the Northeast in the area that would have been most abolitionist actually um, and just finding that out was sort of a cool discovery um, there were a number there was one um, there was one uh, professor who actually lived in Louisiana for a time and did own a slave but he was from the northeast and once he owned that slave he he, he came to the conviction that slavery was indeed wrong and freed the slave uh, there was that incident and there was actually one uh, professor who was from Ireland 
Um, this is the one where we could maybe make a case that Hayes had some Southern faculty, even though he's from Ireland, because he actually ends up going to the South and, and, and joins the Confederate uh, military. So, so there is there is one uh, or two potential cracks in the in the in the story there. But finding out that the vast vast majority of these faculty members are actually from the Northeast and not Southern faculty uh, was was a very interesting discovery for me. And changes the entire narrative, as you're saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have to just add that I think it's especially ironic that uh, that uh, Lucy Hayes, with you know, being called Lemonade Lucy for her involvement in temperance, would be <laughs> living in a place called Spiegel Grove, where <laughs> potentially a liquor influence, <laughs> or yeah. that the whole name is based on liquor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because Sardis had, and, and maybe you remember this from the tour, but Sardis had a uh, smoking room where he would have smoked and, and drank. Uh, with his friends. When Rutherford and Lucy moved in, they turned it into a museum. So they had no use for a smoking room. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dustin, it's been fascinating talking with you. And uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts about Hayes. Uh, for anyone listening, wonderful museum in Fremont, Ohio, Spiegel Grove, the Rutherford B. Hayes Museum. Uh, the library in particular is, is my favorite room. It's such a gorgeous space to work. Uh, I'm always envious of Hayes when I walk in there and see that room. Um, but it's been, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Dustin. Uh, thanks again for joining me, and I look forward to saying hello again in person at Spiegel Grove. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Yeah.